Uh, Bob McKay has been on the mission field for who knows how long, what, long time. And he's like me. He was once young, now he's old. Um, We've never seen uh, God's seed begging bread, right? Uh, God has been faithful. He's been faithful to Bob. And uh, Bob, uh, I met him for the first time when I came here back in a little after 2001. And I think he was one of the first missionaries we had back then. And I just fell in love with him, with his heart and his vision and his passion for the Lord. And he's somebody who you never have to wonder what he's thinking because he will just tell you. And so I like people like that. I like people who are just honest and and share what's on their heart. And Bob is that kind of a guy. And you are blessed. I mean, truly blessed today. I'm, I'm thankful. And uh, when Bob called and said he was itinerating and I set him up on the schedule, I thought, you know, that's a gift of God to me, Bob, that you, you'll be the last missionary that I will have here as the pastor. And uh, that made me very happy and made me smile. So Thank God you. bless you as you share today. Thank you. Love you, brother. Thank you. Pastor's a very gracious and wonderful man, isn't he? They don't come any better than him. So I say I have a friend like that. He's, uh, I said when he... Uh, I said, when, I, when God created that guy, I said he created one of the best, that was one of the best men God ever made, you know. <laughs> and so I feel it is a great honor. Thanks, Pastor, for having me. It's a beautiful day. And he is right. I am a very direct person, but that's because I'm from the UP. What can I say, you know? It's, uh, you know how those UPers are, don't you? Any of you from the UP? Yeah. You know, they tend not to beat around the bush. But it is a tremendous honor for me to be with you. I just came back, and in fact, a week ago. So now that I'm not as young as I used to be, I'm not going to say old, because, you know, age is a relative. Uh, the old famous baseball pitcher, Satchel Paige, said, he said, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? So uh, I've been around young people most of my life. I was a teacher before I became a missionary, and uh, I've been around college and university students all my life. So it keeps you young when you're around young people. And some people, I have a, a relative, he was 25 years old, going on 85, you know, because his mentality was that of a very older person. So I think it's wonderful uh, what God is doing around the world. I, I haven't heard much about this Asbury revival that's been going on, but uh, I'm happy for what God is doing. We talked about that in Sunday school a little bit. But I want to talk about my favorite subject this morning. And you know who, you know who that is? You got it. Jesus our Lord and Savior, the greatest subject that you could, anybody could possibly talk about. And I entitled my sermon then, How Should We Then Live? Based on the book by Francis Schaeffer in 1976, where Schaeffer mentioned that uh, we need, the Christians need, people in America needed to see that there is a God who exists and who cares about people. Is that true? I want to set the stage for you because well, first of all, I want to talk about what's going on in Georgia. Then I'll get into my sermon. I promised Pastor I would do that. I've been now. You guys have supported me almost since day one. I've been in the former Soviet Union for the last 25 years, so I've spent time in, of course, Ukraine, and uh, 10 years in Ukraine, 15 years in Georgia, plus visiting all those other countries like Russia. When I was able to go there, I'm not able to go there anymore. Even if there was no war, they would not let me back in there. But we did and saw many great things what the Lord has done in that part of the world. I remember 
when I first came there, very few people had a Bible. In fact, a lot of pastors did not even have a Bible. And now they say there are over 100 million Russian Bibles in print in the Russian language. It's really incredible. I remember some of the places where we started Bible schools where they had all they had to eat was spaghetti, you know, or the uh, one of the times we had a famine where we went to eat. And I said, Brother Bob, I'm sorry, we don't have any spaghetti. I said, what do you have? They said, well, uh, we have grasshoppers. I said, so, I said, how long will they last? They said, probably for a week, you know. And so they gave me roasted grasshoppers with some kind of tomato sauce on top of it. And they said, well, how did you like the grasshoppers? I said, oh, they were very tasty, you know. I said, they were a little crunchy on the outside and gooey on the inside. But, uh, but I said, but the main thing was the tomato sauce made me sick. I don't know what happened. But, uh, but those are, that's some of the fun and joy of being a missionary. And as pastor said, God is always taking care of us. We never had to beg. He's always watched over us. Don't ever forget that. If you name the Lord your God as your God and you follow him hard after him, he's going to take care of you. He's going to watch over you, isn't he? He always will. He's very good at that. So I wanted to just mention a few things from Schaefer's book to ask you the question, how should we then live? How, how will a Christian in America or anywhere else in the world, how will we change the world we live in? How will we change the churches that we're in? How will we change the country that we live in? And I think it's very clear. Schaefer mentioned in his book some 45 years ago, he said that we need to have a Judeo-Christian concept. We need to believe in a God who exists and who cares. And some of the things he said, he said, we, he said we have a personal God who exists, he has spoken and he cares. And when he wrote that book, over 50% of Americans back in 1976 had a Christian, Judeo-Christian concept, which meant they believed God created the world, the Bible is true, Jesus Christ God sent into the world, and, and on these things that certain things were wrong that we see are now considered to be okay or right. He said we need to have this Judeo-Christian concept. He says this will give us a moral absolute on which we can conduct our lives and our society, and it will give us freedom without chaos. He said without this worldview, we will have chaos, and we will not have freedom. He says the alternative is we'll become a culture that continues to deny and oppose this absolute truth, we will become a culture that is based on humanism, where man is his own measure and where values are relative, leading to a life where there is no way to distinguish right from wrong. Is that what we face now? That's our country, that's our world, isn't it? He said, this leads to growing despair, confusion, and fragmentation. These values will also lead us to sacrifice our personal freedoms for a more authoritarian government that will provide us with these relative values. The government will tell us what's right and wrong. Those who do not adhere to this value system will be considered to be malcontents, anarchists, haters, and dangers to our society. Religious people will be the most suspect group because of their unwillingness to follow the new order and accept change. He says the new humanism will continue to devalue life, both young and old. You heard about the baby that was left out uh, last night in some park close by. You probably heard that on the news. It will devalue life, both young and old, and the society will be more open, open to more subtle forms of control and manipulation. Control, he says, he said this almost 50 years ago now. He said control will be maintained through the media, by the courts, through legal decisions, by science, by the medical community, and by the political order leading to the demise of Western civilization. Would you say that he was a prophet? It sounds like he said these things last week, didn't he? 
And so his question was, how should we then live? How should we, as Christians, conduct our life? What is the thing that's going to change my life personally? What is going to change our churches? What is going to change our country and our world? And that's what we're going to talk about. But let me tell you about the world I live in. I live in the world called Eurasia. Eurasia, where there is almost 2.5 billion people. And in Eurasia, 99.7% of the people in Eurasia are hopelessly lost without Christ. Imagine that. Only 0.3% of the people know Christ. There's 44 nations. Over 80% of Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus, they've never met a Christian, they've never read a Bible, they've never seen a church, and they've never heard the good news. They've never heard a missionary or an evangelist. They are hopelessly lost. They need Christ. And we live in a world what 10% of a Christian worldview. We live in a country that is a pagan country now. We have to admit that. We have to face the fact that we are now living in a post-Christian society in America. If you don't believe me, just turn on the TV, watch sports, listen to one of the news channels, go see what they're teaching your kids in school. You know, these test results that are coming out, it's unbelievable, the, uh, the learning that's going on, or the lack of learning, I should say. So we need a change in our world. We've had the Asbury Revival, which started on February 8th. How many of you are happy for that? And I think, yes, that's, our attitude should always be, we're happy, we're glad, we're excited. Anytime we hear that God is moving somewhere, you know, we have other people who are ready, to, they're sitting on their high horse and looking over their glasses. You know this look? How many of you know that look? I used to give that to the students. Everybody knows what that look means. I think we need to keep our glasses back on the bridge of our nose rather than the end of our nose. What do you think? And as Christians, we need to be supporting and praying for and always expecting that God is going to do something. Because if we compare the church of the world with what's happening in a lot of churches in America, if they were to ask me what is the main thing that is missing in our churches here in America, I would probably say expectation. Expectation that God is going to move. Expectation that somebody's going to get saved in our service. Expectation that God's going to meet a need. You're here, God wants to meet your need. Isn't that true? Whatever your need is, pastor just prayed for that. And I believe that. And that's one of the main reasons why we're here. We're here to worship God and we're here to have God minister to us. So the question is then, how should we live? But in Georgia, now that I'm getting, I'm not getting any younger. I'm not saying I'm getting older. I'm getting busier now that I'm older. I'm getting, I, we have more things to do. We have countries coming to Georgia Georgia now, we're surrounded by Turkey, Russia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia. We're called an island of Christianity in a sea of Islam. Who would have ever thought a little country like Georgia with a population of 4 million people would become a center for Christianity in our part of the world? But we have the whole world coming to us. We have the Iranians who have come to us, like 500,000 Iranians in the last two years. Many of them Christians. The greatest survival in the world probably going on in Iran. They say maybe... Four million evangelical Christians possibly in Iran now, fearlessly sharing Jesus Christ. We have Turks coming to Georgia. We have Russians pouring in the country. I just looked up on the Georgian uh, uh, Interior Ministry site last week, and they said over 220,000 Russians came into the country last month. In a small country like Georgia, they're pouring in. They have to wait at the border for, for a week and I would stand there with my friend, my Georgian friend. We'd meet Russian guys as they're coming. The standard profile is you meet a guy maybe 30 to 45 years old, and they all, they're all the same. They, I said, well, how did you get here? Well, I drove my car. I parked it about 200 miles away, and then I took my bike out of the trunk, and I rode it down here. And then, and then Putin's guys, the recruitment specialists, they call them, 
they'd run after me and holler at me, give me my passport. I'd ignore him like I didn't see him. But he said, one guy jumped in front of my bike and I knocked him over. And he said, give me your passport. And he said, you got to give me half your money if I'm going to let you go into Georgia. This guy was 31 years old. His name was Vadim. I said, tell me about yourself. He said, I've got a wife. I got a baby boy at home. And he said, I don't know if I'll ever see my family again. He said, my parents are going to live with my, my wife and my, my little baby now, and I'm going to try to get into Turkey, which he did. And so we've been helping these kind of guys. We had convoy of help helping our Ukrainian refugees who have come in. We had the city of Mariupol when it was destroyed, the first one. You remember that city? We had hundreds of people in Convoy of Hope, and other people helped us incredibly. So we had well over 100 families staying in our center in Tbilisi, Georgia. And these people had nothing but the shirt on their back, you know. Some of them actually died. Some of the older people died in our center because of the journey. It was so arduous. Coming 700 miles across southern Russia through the Caucasus Mountains into, and then crossing and coming south into Georgia. But you know what? We got every single one of those families relocated outside of Georgia, every single one of them. I was in church not many, not many weeks ago, and a girl came up to me crying. And she was 18 years old, and she's crying. I said, what's wrong, honey? She says, I... Uh, you need to find me a job here in the city. I said, why? She said, my mom's in Poland somewhere. I have no idea where she is. I'm 18 years old. I speak English. I said, you speak it very well. She said, I speak Russian too, but I, I got to get a job and try to find where my mom is. I said, don't worry, honey. We're going to get you out of here. Don't worry about it. We've got every single person out of there, and we've got every single one of them relocated, every last one of them. So thanks. Praise, praise to the Lord. God is faithful. And the people who are next faithful to God are the churches and the people that have been, you know, just involved in supporting and supporting and partners for all these many years. It's amazing to see what happens. When I came to Georgia 15 years ago, we had a handful of churches in Georgia. We have 140 churches now. And we have several church building projects they're trying to raise money for. We're building Bible schools. I told the Sunday school class, we started 11 Bible schools in the last three years in Georgia. And it only costs us $2,500 to $3,000 to build a Bible school. Can you imagine that? We come to a church like if I were here in Wisconsin, I'd say, hey, let's go to Marinette, let's go to, you know, let's go to Stevens Point, let's go to Wausau, let's go here, let's go to this key areas, strategic areas, and we're going to ask the pastor, Pastor, can we have 25% of the church? We're going we're gonna to build a, a, a room with chairs and desks and audiovisual equipment and a quarters for a guest teacher to sleep in. We can do that for $2,500. Can you believe that? That's all it costs us to do. And that way we can train pastors and, and church planners and missionaries and send them out into these areas where they've never heard the gospel. Some of these people that have never heard the name of Jesus, we need to do that. So, Pastor, that's what we're doing. Pastor's going to come up and uh, take an offering for me, which is very nice. Thank you. Thank you for your partnership. It's been many years, and it's been worthwhile. Uh, we could have the ushers prepare to come, and uh, when you give, uh, we're praying you'll be generous as you possibly can, and uh, maybe we might be one of those churches that builds a Bible school or two. You ever think about that? Amen? Amen? Wouldn't that be awesome? And so uh, we appreciate our, uh, our uh, friend, and he's here sharing his heart, and we want to be generous. If you make your checks out, make them out to Calvary Church. We'll make sure that all the money goes right where it belongs, and uh, probably then some. So would you join with me in prayer? Father, 
<clears throat> we thank you for this opportunity to worship you in our giving. Lord, to, um, to fund your, your work. Uh, Lord, we can't all go to Georgia. We can't all go to the former Soviet Union or go to Africa. But, Lord, we can partner with those who do and share their vision. And so, God, this is how we do it. Lord, we're going to give and we're going to pray for them. And so, Lord, right now, bless this offering and let it expand the borders of the kingdom of God and meet the needs, uh, Lord, for uh, Bob McKay's mission and his vision. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. 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 Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Pastor. Thanks, Pastor. And thank you so much for your giving, for your partnership. I consider you to be partners because we've done this for a long time. And because of what we're doing, God has really done some great things in Georgia. I, I told in, in a Sunday school class that I've, I've spent the last eight years of my life in Georgia with eight men that I've discipled and spent all my time. I spend 99% of my time with these young, these young men. They're all married. They all have families. They're all on fire for God. They all have a vision for seeing the kingdom of God advanced in Georgia. And you know what? I've been criticized beyond belief by people for spending my time, for not going out and doing mass evangelism, for not, you know, whatever, holding these meetings. But our job is to make disciples of all nations. That's what Jesus said, the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And now I'll be retiring sometime soon, you know. We're all going to retire sometime, aren't we? Either voluntarily or involuntarily, right? And what will happen after we're gone? What, what do we leave behind? Do we leave behind people that we've touched? people we poured our life into, people that love us. See, the Georgian government loves the Assemblies of God. Not every country loves the Assemblies of God. Russia doesn't love us. But they came and they gave me a special passport two years ago. They said, you know, we don't know what Assemblies of God means. We don't know really who you are even. And I don't tell them I'm a Christian. I said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And they told me, the government told me in this Ministry of Justice building, they said, we love you and we respect you and we admire you for what you're doing. I said, you know, the U.S. government's never told me that before. I said, especially the tax police. We call them the IRS. They never told me they loved me before. They go, oh, that's very interesting. They haven't? No, I said, no, they haven't. They've never told me that. But uh, when we live for Jesus, people are going to see it. And so what I have to share with you today is something that, uh, of course, you will have heard before that you know. How will we change the world that we live in? How will we do it? What is our strategy it's a very simple strategy. We need to become more like Jesus Christ. What do you think? We need to be more like him every day. How many of you are more like Jesus every day? Every day, you're, you can look back on your life and say, two years ago, you know, today I'm more generous, I'm more kind, I'm more patient. I'm not as mean as I used to be here. I have the fruits of the Spirit. You know, when I was a teacher, I was a teacher for 20-some years. When I was in Ukraine, I was an academic dean of a seminary. I was a teacher at North Central University. The Hawthorns, all their kids and their in-law or their kids and their, their, the ones they're married to, they were all students of mine. But I was a mean bugger back then, you know. I was your typical youper. I would crucify those poor students. They used to say, McKay doesn't have a heart. He doesn't have a conscience. He's got blood, he's got ice water running through his veins. But I hope people don't say that anymore. I'm a little more compassionate than I was, a little more generous. And so how should we then live was the question that Francis Schaeffer answered. And my answer to that is, we need to follow Jesus. We need to imitate Jesus. We need to become more like Christ. When you look at the life of Paul, what did he want? What was his goal in life? His goal was to know Jesus Christ. He said in Philippians 3, that I may know him 
the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, so that I may become more like him. That's what I want. He said in Romans 8, Paul said, that we need to conform to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's how we come to know God. That's how we come to know Jesus. And so I want to present you three simple points on how we should then live based on the great passage in Philippians chapter 2. The first thing is we need to walk the road of humility. We need to walk the road that Jesus walked. We need to walk the road of humility. That's where it all begins. How many of you like to humble yourself? How many of you like to be humbled? I love it when I'm humbled. Isn't it a great thing? I love it when people humble me. When I went home to Ironwood the first time, I had to, you know, everybody was getting COVID. I came home during COVID, and I had COVID. But then every time I'd see somebody in the church, I, I, I would affectionately come to them. They're older people usually. Renee's been in that church a lot. But I came up to one of the sisters, who's one of the elders, and I, and I said, Karen, I heard you have COVID. I'm sorry. I said, you know what you need to do? I said, she said, what? I said, you need to get sin out of your life. Get sin out of your life, Karen. And she says, oh, thanks so much, Bob. That's so nice of you to say to me. And I would say that to people. And I came back. I had eye palsy. I had to have a patch over my eye. Anybody have to have a patch over your eye for any kind of eye problem? And I came back. And the oldest lady in the church, sweetest gal, she's from Texas, she's got this real soft voice. And she comes to me. Her name is Jeannie. And she says, oh, Bob, I'm so sorry about your eye. You know what you need to do? And she did this in front of the church. I said, no, it's Jeannie. She goes, you need to get sin out of your life. Yeah. And everybody in the church says, woo-hoo. Man, we got him. And I just looked at Jeannie and smiled. I said, Jeannie, that was a thing of beauty, what you did there. I mean, she gave it to me. She humbled me. I deserve that, right? So it's great when you get humbled. It puts you back in your place. But it says, Jesus Jesus walked the road of humility. If we look at this passage, the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, this song, it's called the Song of Christ. Uh, scholars believe it was the first song sung in the early church that they know of. It was, that's what it was entitled, the Song of Christ. It was a song about who Jesus was. And what does it say in Philippians 2? It says, what did he do? It says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. The first thing, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. This is where the Christian life begins. Please understand this. The Christian life begins with humility. And there are many things involved in humility. Another way we can say humility is dying to ourselves. How many of you know that? We need to die to ourselves, to our own plans, to our own desires. And, and accept God's plan for our life. And his plan is that we come to know Jesus Christ and become more like him. Everything begins with humility. There's a famous author named Andrew Murray. Anybody ever read any Andrew Murray books about prayer? Some of you have. And the guy talked a lot about humility and dying to self. He said, you know, I reached a point in my life where I realized I had to die to myself, to my own plans, my own wishes, my own desires. And he said, and one night I went to bed and I was thinking, you know, I finally, I think maybe I finally understood. I need to die to myself. He said, I went to bed, I put my head on the pillow and I woke up and I heard the angels in heaven singing. And they were getting excited. They were all cheering and clapping and singing. And he said, and they were saying something. I couldn't figure out what they were saying. And then I listened real close. And he said, some of the angels are saying, Andrew Murray is dead. Andrew Murray died to himself. That's what they were rejoicing about. 
Does that sound like something to rejoice about? That we died to ourself and we accepted Jesus? And so what does it involve? What does uh, humility involve? What does it mean? It means seeking the Lord. We have to seek the Lord. It means depending on the Holy Spirit. It means realizing that we are hopelessly lost without Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the only hope for us and for a lost and dying world. That's, humil that's all humility. It means, and when we come to revival, see, I've been in missions. I've been in this thing for a long time. I've been doing this for 30 years now, really. And I've been fortunate to see incredible moves of God. Romania, Bulgaria, Russia, Ukraine, and a lot of these countries, you know, when they, when they talk about revival, they say, ah, oh, you know, God's going to send us a revival, and when he does this, we're going to do this, that, and the other thing. And they make all these grandiose plans and all the boasts about what they're going to do. And you know what happens when the Holy Spirit comes? I saw in all four countries, same thing happens. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, do you know what happens? The very first thing they do the next day, they start coming to the church or a place where they can meet. They'll get in, they put their face on the floor at five or six in the morning on the carpet, and they start crying, and they say, oh, God, you've got to help us. <laughs> we can't do anything. You need to open the door for us. You need to tell us where to go. You need to give us the favor with people. We, you, need, you need to tell us what our, what our long-range plans are. You, you There's a sense of helplessness. There's a sense of powerlessness that we need God above all things. We can't do anything by ourselves. Is that good theology? Those of you who are studying the, the hermeneutics and the Bible and theology, that's good theology. And this is something we need in our country. When people come to Christ or when they repent, they need to see that they are lost. You know, James Kennedy once said, the problem with most American Christians is they never were lost before they were saved. They never realized that they were hopelessly separated from God because of their sin. As Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were powerless, when there was nothing that we could do, when we had to have God reach down to us and we had, he had to send Jesus Christ, he had to draw us to himself. He had to convict us of sin. It was all God. We had to have him. You know, we didn't, we didn't do this by ourselves, did we? This happened because of the, the grace of God and his mercy and his love and all the wonderful things that God has done in our life. So Jesus humbled himself and he became obedient. Humility what I would say, if people would say, what are the things you remember most? I've seen whole villages come to Christ. I've seen towns come to Christ. I've seen miracles. I've been in prayer meetings that have lasted 16 hours where God's doing miracles and people jumping out of wheelchairs and blind people healed and all this. What's the thing I remember the most? I have to be honest with you. The thing I remember most are the people of humility that I have met. The men and women of God that I have met that love Jesus. And I, one of them I went to when I was teaching in Siberia where I was eating the grasshoppers. I went up in the Arctic Circle where they had a church which was so poor I cried when I came in there. And in this church they were so fired up for God. They were so on fire. And as I'm preaching there's a, this audience, there's a lady sitting in the third row, probably in her 80s. She looked to be the oldest lady in the church. And she kept staring at me and smiling at me. And she had these big thick glasses they look like the bottom of a coke bottle ever look remember when we used to get those big coke bottles she looked like the coke bottle her eyes looked like little bb's behind those glasses and she's smiling at me and she's got a typical russian grandma smile three teeth in her mouth you know all her teeth are gone one here and one here and one there she's smiling at me and i just stopped preaching three times and i'm smiling back at her and i'm saying to myself what are you doing smiling at her you should be preaching and i'm just smiling at her and each time I said to her, I said, ma'am, 
I said, you have the most beautiful smile I have ever seen in my life. And all the Russian women and the young girls are all going, hee 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 hee, hoo 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 hoo, because they get embarrassed when you call them out like that, hee hee hee. And, uh, and I meant it because I could see the joy of the Lord all over her face. We came to the end of the service. I said, Pastor, tell me about that lady back there. Oh, I'll tell you about her, he says. That's Sister Ludmila. He said, she got saved when she was 68 years old, got baptized in the Holy Spirit. He said, you see, half of the people in this church live within a three-block radius of her home. He said, she led every single one of them to Christ and brought them to this church. And he said, and the most amazing thing is, she is our most, our most avid Bible reader. He said, she reads the Bible and prays 14 hours a day. And he says, and the amazing thing about her Bible reading is she's legally blind. He said it takes her 14 hours sometimes to read two chapters in the Bible. He said she's totally blind in her right eye and she's got about 20 to 30% vision in her left eye. And she's got this big, like a big pirate magnifying glass. And he said she's got this Bible and she reads like this, you know, one letter at a time. So she came forward for prayer at the end. Man, I never got so excited. I said, man, I'm going to get to pray for Sister Ludmila. Do you know what I'm going to pray for, right? I'm going to pray that God heals her eyes, right? That's a logical prayer, isn't it? So she comes up there and she's smiling at me. And I said, Sister Ludmila, can I pray for you that God will heal your eyes? And she says, oh, no, that's okay. She said, but would you pray that my eyes don't get any worse? So I could keep reading my Bible with my magnifying glass. Mm. And when she said that, I lost it, you know. I lost it. I started crying like a baby, you know. I said, somebody else has to pray for. I can't pray for, you know. But after the service, I put my arm around her and I kissed her on the cheek. I said, Sister Ludmila, when we get to heaven, she says, I said, I want to be your next door neighbor. And she said, well, that's not for me to decide. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I thought you'd say something like that. I said, you're going to be up there with my mom. You're going to be right up there by Jesus at the banquet table. I'm going to be way back here. You know, I'll, I'll be waving to you up there somewhere. <laughs> you're going to be up there. And they were laughing. But what did I see in here? What I saw in Ludmila was this incredible humility of Christ. She didn't care if her eyes were, were perfect or not. She didn't care if she was if she was rich or poor. She didn't care what kind of house she lived in. She didn't have a car, of course. All that she wanted was Jesus, you know. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold than anything. Does that describe you? That's part of humility. We'll have Jesus. If we have Jesus, we have everything. We don't need anything else. He'll provide us with other things. And so we need more Ludmilas in our life, don't we? And so when we see the humility, when we see the humility of Christ in somewhere, someone, that should be a tremendous motivation for us. And that's the question now. How do we obtain a revival? We said in the Sunday school class, a, a revival is not for America. A revival is for us. A revival is for the church. How many of you know that? America doesn't need a revival. America needs Jesus. America needs an awakening. America needs a reformation. The church needs a revival. The church needs to be revived so that we can show people what Jesus is like. You know, we need a godly church, a powerful church, a church that's on fire for God. That's how we do it. Now, we quote a verse, 2 Chronicles 7.14. I'm sure a lot of you know that. If you turn on CBN at all, they read this one all the time. How many of you know this verse? If my people who are called by my name shall do what? Humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. 
Then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. But if you ask most Christians, how do we get a revival? 90% of them are going to say, pray, pray, pray. That's the most important thing. Well, I beg to differ. I'd say we have to humble ourselves first. What do you think? Jesus humbled himself first and became obedient to death. It says here, if my people who are called by my name, it doesn't say if the devil's people who are called by Satan's name will humble themselves. It says if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Then you can pray. Because, you know, how many of you grew up on a farm? You had to go get the cows at the end of the day. Anybody have to do that? See, I'll tell you, you can pray till the cows come home and nothing's going to happen if your heart's running right. Isn't that true? That's a farm term. You can pray all you want till you're blue in the face. There's another idiom. But if your heart's not right, we have to have a right heart. Our heart has to be right. And that's where humility starts. This is where, where it begins. Humility. People, we have, to, we have to understand this. In Deuteronomy 8, it says, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase, may enter the, and possess the land promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. The Lord humbles us to see what our attitude is, what is in our heart. And you see, the second part is whether we keep his commands or not. So it starts with humility. That's where it all begins. So humility, dying to yourself, dying to your own world, dying to your plans, that's the first thing. That's the most important thing. If you hear the rabbis teach in the synagogue, they say the most important, most of them will tell you the most important story in the, in the Torah is Genesis 22 when Abraham sacrifices Isaac or goes to sacrifice him. And I was in a, in a lecture actually in Chicago when I was in seminary, and this man, Rabbi Velp, he got up and says, hey, you, you, you evangelicals are going to like this one. He said, that's the most important st st story in the Old Testament. He said, because when Moses offered his son, he said this was his born-again experience because he had to offer the thing that was dearest to him. He tried to play God. He tried to, you know, take control. God had a plan for his life. It was through Isaac, it seemed to be numbered. But he loved his other son. And he was trying to control things. He was trying to get his own way. And he says it wasn't until he offered his son Isaac on the altar and God said, now I know that Abraham's heart is after me. He said that was his born-again experience. Abraham had to die. He had to die to his own plans for his own life. He had to die to his own will and his own way of doing things. What do you think of that? Do you agree with that? We have to do the same thing. We have to die. This is where it starts. We have to have humility first. Then, after the humility... Then we come to the obedience part. And this is what it says about Jesus. He humbled himself, and then he became obedient. So that's the second point. We need to walk the road of obedience. We need to do what God tells us to do. I have a lot of kids sometimes ask me, the children's church, they were great. They gave me some flashlights, you know. I told them a story about a kid in Romania who came to the Lord. But we need to have obedience. One, one kid asked me a long time ago, and I've had this question asked several times, he said, wow, it must be really difficult to be a missionary. How difficult is it to be a missionary? I said, well, it's incredibly difficult. I said, you have to do two things. Okay, he goes, what are those things? I said, you need to hear the voice of God and you need to obey God. That's it. That's it. That's all you need to do. Hear the voice of God and obey God and do what he tells you to do. That's not that much, is it? And that's the thing that we have difficulty with. Because we're waiting for God to do something for us. Or we're, we're waiting for God. Some of you may remember Buffalo Bob or Captain Kangaroo. Anybody remember that? 
A lot of Christians are waiting for God to plunk me with your magic twanger, God. I once wrote an article that said God is not in the magic twanger business. How many of you know what a magic twanger is? It's that, that plastic or rubber wand that has the star on the end, you know, and, and when, you, when, you, when you plunk it, it goes boing, like that. It makes that sound boing, and then the stardust flies out of it. See, a lot of people want God to plunk them with the magic twanger, make everything okay. Don't ask me to change my life. Don't ask me to repent. Don't ask me to give up things. Don't ask me to make sacrifices. Just plunk me with your magic twanger, God, and everything will be okay. So how many of you know that God is not in the magic twanger business? God is into, he sent Jesus Christ, and he wants us to give our hearts to him and to follow him and to obey him. That's his plan. Amen? So how do we know we're a Christian? I hear this question all the time, too. How do we know we're a Christian pastor? Answer this in Sunday school. If you keep his commandments, if you love me, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. He said, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And then Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. There you go. My Father will love them, he will come to them, and we will make our home with them. You want the presence of God in your life? You want the power of God in your life? Obey God. Humble yourself. Obey him. And usually God asks us to do simple things. God doesn't ask us to save Wisconsin, does he? God may ask you to go next door and give the senior lady a meal because she can't make a meal for herself. God may ask you to pray for somebody or witness to somebody in the store, and you're afraid to do it, and that's why you need boldness. We all need boldness from the Holy Spirit, don't we? And he says, everyone, and John, it says, everyone who believes that Jesus is, born, is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. They're not hard to keep. They're easy to keep. I mean, God doesn't throw a load on us that we can't carry. Remember, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Isn't that true? He wants to take the load from us. He wants, I'm not saying Christianity is an easy way, but he wants to take our burdens. He wants to help us. So everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So we do what he says. That's obedience. We do what he tells us to do. You know, I can, I can be honest. I told you that I've seen many villages come to Christ and Huge crowds come to Christ. And I can honestly tell you that none of those people came to Christ because of my faith. How many, how many of you can appreciate that? In fact, I can even tell you that most of the time when I've seen God move something, I'm just being honest with you, many of the times, the ones I remember well, are the times where I had very little faith. What do you think of that? I remember one time where I didn't have enough faith to jump over a dime. That's how much faith I had. Anybody have that much faith before? He didn't have a faith to jump over a dime. It was about this much. And, you know, we went to a village only because the ladies in the church were praying. We had intercessors that prayed and prayed and said, you guys need to go to this village, and they're going to accept Christ. And I said, are you nuts? I said, they want to beat us up. They're going to take, you know, they throw rocks at us every time we go there. And they did. We went there, and people were coming to Christ, but they were throwing rocks at us. They were throwing rotten fruit at us. They were hitting us. I mean, not just... The Gungis, remember that word? Gungis, big ones. And I told the young guys, hey, you walk over there, I'll walk over here. They said, yeah, but they're throwing rocks from over there. I said, yeah, that's why I'm walking over here, you know. 
And they said, Brother Bob, I said, they said, Kafam Kafam ran and said, they said, Bob, it hurts. They're hitting me with some big rocks. And I said, well, I said, uh, I said, you got to get out of the way, you know. They said, that, that's, that's not funny, you know. That hurts when I get hit with those rocks. I said, they're not throwing them at you. They're throwing them at Jesus. They said, yeah, but it still hurts when we get hit by the rocks. And so they didn't like my, and I went, we went to the city like eight Sundays in a row. People kept coming to Christ, but at the same time, People were bombing us with rocks and rotten fruit. They were cursing us, calling us every dirty name they could think of. The police were telling us to get lost. The mayor, the politician said, you're never going to have a church here. You'll never have a Pentecostal church. We'll never sell you a building. We'll never rent you any property. Forget about it. And then they told us on the eighth Sunday, this is your last Sunday. You're never coming back here. <coughs> and the lady said, you have to go. God told you you got to go on this Sunday. You have to go. So we went and we got, we got bombed with rocks. We got people doing all kinds of stuff to us, and they're all uttering their threats. The mayor was the worst one. And I came to the middle of the road of that city, and I was so discouraged, and I was so down. You know, that's when the devil attacks you. How many of you know that? When you're tired, when you're discouraged. That's when he sends somebody to try to discourage you. That's when a friend comes and sticks a knife in your back. That's when he tells you you're no good. Remember that. Don't forget that. And I'm standing in the middle of the road, and I'm crying, and the pastors are around me. They said, what's wrong, Brother Bob? I said, oh, man, you heard what they said. We're never going to have a Pentecostal church in this town. They're never going to rent anything to us. This is our last Sunday, and people are coming to Christ. And, oh, what are we going to do with them? Oh, well. And the brother said, come on, Brother Bob. God didn't let this happen to let us fail. He's going to come through for us. Yeah, 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 whatever you say. You know, that's how big my faith was. Sounds like the man of faith, doesn't it? Well, we preached. People came to Christ on the way out of town. They're throwing stuff at us. And the mayor was there to greet us. I said, oh, he's going to curse us as we go out. And he looks at me, and he goes to the group. He goes, come here. Come over here. I want to talk to you guys. And I said, oh, boy, what's he going to do now, you know? What's he going to tell us now? We come into his house. He had this huge home, you know, several thousand square feet. He had an addition he put on his house. And we come in there, and this mayor looks at me, and he looks at the brothers, and he starts to cry. He said, you guys don't know this. But I went to your meeting last week. I hid behind the trees in the dark because we do it in the dark. And he said, you know what? He said, I repented. I asked Christ to forgive me. He said, I became a Christian. And he said, and last night God told me that I'm supposed to give this new addition to my house. It's a Pentecostal church in this city. <laughs> and we all fell on our knees. We're crying. We had our hands in the air. Oh, hallelujah. And you know what happened when I walked out of the mayor's house? I was feeling pretty good, you know? A lot better than when I came in the city. You know, I actually came out of that house, and you know what I did? Woohoo! Yeah, baby! And I started singing a song. These brothers didn't like what I sang, you know, because of my, you know, I wasn't always a Christian, you know, but I sang this song that some of you may, may know, and, and I'm singing, we are the champions, my friends. And they go, stop singing that song, Brother Bob, that's not a Christian song. I said, yeah, but it's how I feel, you know. And they said, put Christian words to it if you're going to sing that song. And I came out in the middle of the road. I said, brothers, come here. i got to tell all of you something. They go, what is it? I said, you know, I never doubted for a second that we're going to have Pentecostal church in this city. I never doubted for a second that we're... And one of them said, oh, yes, Brother Bob, you are the man of faith. So if you ever hear that I was called the man of faith, that's where I got it from. But, you know, we obeyed the Lord. My faith was just big, like some of you. How many of you believe God's going to take care of you? You believe that he's going to provide for you? Of course you do. And some of you have been tithing and giving for many years, right? So what happened? Why did you give? You give because God wants you to give, right? Because you're being obedient. 
And I can ask you now, I bet you today you believe more today than ever before that God's going to take care of you, don't you? So the obedience came before the faith. The faith didn't come first. The obedience comes first. And that's what we have to realize. So we follow the Lord. So obedience is the next step after humility. Humility's got to come first. And then obedience comes, and the faith will follow. It'll follow in time. It always comes after, though. And then the third walk, the third thing that Jesus did, he walked the road of sacrifice. God will ask you to make sacrifices. He will ask you to hope and to pray, to work, to struggle, to believe, and to not give up, to expect, to endure, all those things that we have to do. It's not easy believism. We don't have the, the magic twanger. We seek the Lord. And I've seen this over and over again in Ukraine the last time I went to eastern Ukraine, where these people have nothing. It was a small church. They were praying. For years they prayed. It was 30 people in the church. They said, oh, Brother Bob, we're praying for our relatives. Most of them are lost. We're praying every day. We invite them to church every week and week after week, month after month, year after year. They never come. When are they going to come? I said, we have to keep praying. And then one day they called me. It was the week before Easter. They said, Brother Bob, please come. A miracle has happened. And I said, what? They said, almost every single family of every one of our members, we prayed, we invited them to church, and almost every single person in every family said, yes, they'll come to church on Easter. We're going to have about 200 people of our relatives coming to church on Easter. So I went there. I could hardly walk through the, it took me five minutes to walk up to the front. I didn't know anybody there. I said, Pastor, where are the people? He said, look out there. There, it was farm country, you know. It was, it was Easter time, you know. March or whatever, the mud was up to their shins. Women in the only good dress they have. Men in the only good pair of slacks they have. And they're out there praying. I had a Russian guy with me from the seminary. Andre, his name was. A real egghead, you know. Had no emotion. He never cried, never smiled, nothing. And I said, Andre, go out there with the mud people. I want to know what's going on out in the mud people. I'll stay in here with the church. And he's out there, and while I'm preaching, I see him wiping tears from his eyes like this. I go, oh, man, something's got to be going on if he's crying. So I said, come in here, Andre, tell me what's going on. He said, Bob, you're not going to believe this. Those people, that's the whole church. They've been out in the mud since 5 o'clock this morning, praying for their lost loved ones. He said, I'm standing behind this lady. She's got her hands in the ears, and she said, oh, Jesus, I really want to be in there and worship you. I'd love to be in there, but our loved ones need to be in there, and we need to be praying out there. So she says, so Jesus, please don't forget about us as we're out here in the cold in the mud. Please remember us as we're out here praying that our relatives come to you. See, now there's sacrifice, right? Isn't that the kind of church we should be? How often have we prayed for our lost loved ones? Maybe when you first got saved, you prayed for them a lot more than you do now. Is that true? How many is that true? But through the years, just through the time, attrition, through their hardness or their unwillingness to come to Christ, we, we kind of lose the energy, we lose, we lose heart, and we just say, well, well, if God wants them to get saved, they'll get saved. So here's some verses to encourage you. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last will be first james says blessed is the one who perseveres under trial we have to persevere we can't give up these are the days when we have to persevere because having stood the test that person will receive the crown of life that the lord has promised to those who love him 
That's the requirement. We love him and we obey him and we will receive the crown of life. <clears throat> and of course, the obedience leads to the sacrifice and this is, usually comes much later. Sometimes it comes in this lifetime. Much, much of the time it comes in the life after. So how will we change ourselves? How will we change our church? How will we change the world we live in? We need to walk the path that Christ walked. The path of humility, the path of obedience, the path of sacrifice. And what happens when we do it? What happened because Jesus did these things, it says? He humbled himself and became obedient. What does it say in the second part of the passage? It says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Is that what you want to do? You want to be like Jesus? You want to change your life? You want to change America? You want to change the world? Let's become more like Jesus. Let's walk the road of humility, the road of obedience, the road of sacrifice. Let's walk on that road and let's not wander off that road. Let's stay on that road and continue. So I'm going to ask if there's any musicians, if they want to come in. And we want to have a time of prayer. Those of you I know, it's very, getting very close to the finishing time. Fortunately, the Packers are not on this Sunday. <laughs> and we won't waste three hours watching them play. And so, but if you want to come forward... You want, to, you want to make a recommitment to the Lord? You want to say, Lord, yes, please. Renew that commitment in me. Give me that hunger again that I, that I used to have for you. I realize, Lord, that I've been depending too much on myself. I need, I need some humility. I need to die to some of the things in my own life. I need to trust you more. It's very easy in this world we live in to, to, be, to give in to fear, to anxiety. And for those of you who just, you just want to follow the Lord, you want to hear his voice more clearly. So please start praying more. Maybe pray five minutes a day. Pray ten minutes a day if you're not praying. Those of you who are, don't have a Bible plan, there's, I'm sure the church can help you with Bible reading. I happen to be in the book of Acts right now. Acts chapter 5 was my chapter today because it's the fifth chapter. And just, uh, just get in here and read. You don't have to read forever. Read five or ten minutes a day. Listen for the Lord's voice. And then obey him and do whatever he tells you to do. And let's keep on. Let's keep on for Jesus. So, worship team, if you are ready to play, we're going to just ask. I'm going to pray, and, and after I pray, please come forward if you want to. For those of you who feel you need to go, of course, you're free. You're free to be dismissed, please. But we want to open up the altars for people who, who want to pray. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much. And we pray in the name of Jesus that you will do a work in our lives as individuals in our families, in our church, in our nation. And we realize, Lord, that you have given us the great privilege and responsibility of following after you, to follow after Jesus Christ, to be conformed to his image. And so, Lord, let us make that commitment to walk the, that road of humility and obedience and sacrifice as Jesus did. Because we do want to know you, Lord. We want to know more about you. We want to become more like you. And we do want to see these changes. And we believe it will happen as long as we do this. So now, Lord, as we come and as those who must leave will go, Lord, please bless them, watch over them, protect them, guide them. Give them a great day and a great week where they share the love of Jesus, where people will see Jesus Christ in their lives. And for those who, who are praying, Lord, just minister to them, whatever their need is. We ask you, Lord, to touch them, to minister to them, to 
give whatever it is that they need because you are a gracious and a loving, a kind and generous God. And we thank you and praise you for this time that we've had. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.